Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in. If I were to tell you that you had hundreds, if not thousands, of microbes living on your hands, you'd probably respond with, Ew! Gross! And immediately want to sanitize your hands. If I were to tell you that not all of them were bad, in fact, most of them are good, you might be skeptical. Let's take it one step further. What if I told you that we can use naturally occurring bacteria as a form of pest control? Wild, right? One of these bacteria is called Wolbachia. Wolbachia affects the reproductive system in certain insects and can make them sterile. The cool part is that Wolbachia does not affect humans or other large invertebrates, but it does infect many insects that we classify as pests. Today, we explore the world of Wolbachia and learn about how these little bacteria can kick some serious insect butt. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Yumari Vasquez. And I'm Morgan Quayle. Today we have with us Dr. Amelia Lindsay, an assistant professor from the University of Minnesota. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Virtually. <laughs> so. Uh, go ahead. No, you lead. Okay. You lead. Uh, so to start us off, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you study? Yeah, so like Morgan said, I am at the University of Minnesota. I am in the entomology department, and I also have membership in the University of Minnesota's Microbial Plant Genomics Institute. So already I've told you many different things, genomics and insects and microbes, and I sit in a very sort of interdisciplinary space in science. And most of my work focuses on the genomics and evolution of insect-microbe interactions. So most animals have microbes that live within them, you know, gut microbiome and things like that. I focus specifically on a bacterium that lives in the reproductive systems of insects called Wolbachia. So I look at Wolbachia insect interactions across a variety of insects. So why Wolbachia? Like, what is it about it that makes it so unique? So I've never heard of it until we were starting this interview. So I'm, I'm actually curious. What about I'm it is so interesting? You. Wolbachia is very cool. And I, I don't just say this. This is my bias, right? But so Wolbachia is, there's some uncertainty as far as the classification goes. Right now it's a species, but maybe it's, a, it's truly a genus. But it's this group of bacteria. It's within the group called the Rickettsiales. And those are typically pathogens. So you think of rickettsia and these bacteria that are transmitted by ticks and cause all sorts of diseases and things like that. So it's within this group, but Wolbachia is not a pathogen. It's not transmitted to vertebrates and it does not cause human disease or livestock disease. Instead, Wolbachia infects arthropods and nematodes. It lives within the cells of the animal So it is sort of like an organelle in that way. It's within the cells, sits right next to the mitochondria, and Wolbachia is maternally transmitted. So other rickettsia, they go through this sort of transmission cycle from vertebrate host, arthropod vector, typically like a tick, but Wolbachia is passed to the next generation via the egg. 
So mom gives it to offspring through the egg. There are two types of transmission of microbes. The first is horizontal transmission, which is the uptake of microbes from the environment. The second is vertical transmission, which is the process of passing on microbes from mother to offspring. Vertical or maternal transmission allows for bacteria to co-evolve with their hosts and leads to very unique roles of bacteria, such as nutrition. And because of this maternal transmission, there's been a lot of really cool evolutionary adaptations for Wolbachia to maintain its transmission in a population. And that includes things like reproductive manipulations. So some Wolbachia cause what we would call cytoplasmic incompatibility. It's basically a sperm-egg incompatibility. So if dad has Wolbachia and mom doesn't, none of the offspring survive. There are also Wolbachia that change sex ratios in a population. And they do this by converting offspring to female. So there are Wolbachia in parasitoid wasps, for example. They convert the female to an asexual form of reproduction. There are no more males, just females making more Wolbachia-infected females. There are Wolbachia that kill male offspring. There are Wolbachia that feminize male offspring. So they do all sorts of really wild things to insect and arthropod reproduction which is why I'm interested in because I really like reproductive biology, but Wolbachia also change host physiology in tons of other ways. Okay, I need some clarification. Most of the time we hear about an organism living in a host, we hear about parasites, like malaria in humans. But Dr. Lindsay just said that, quote, they can change the host physiology in a lot of other ways and help them. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, not all symbionts are parasitic, some are helpful or even essential. The relationship that we hear about the most are parasites, which is when the parasite benefits and the host is harmed. But there are other relationships such as commensalism, where the parasite benefits and the host is not harmed, and symbiosis, where both the host and the parasite benefit. For example, the relationship between rhizobium and the plant legumes. Rhizobium is an endosymbiont that fixes atmospheric nitrogen to convert into a nitrogen that can be used by the legume. Wow, that's really cool. They protect against pathogens, they give nutrients to their host, they do all sorts of things. So I think as a group, they're really interesting because they've evolved to do so many different things. Okay, I have a follow-up. So I'm actually an epigeneticist, and I'm very excited about what you just said. So as an epigeneticist, when you talk about changing the sex or changing almost phenotype or the phenotypic change, is this also a genetic change? Is it transferable through different generations? Is this an epigenetic change based on like the bacteria? Like, How is this actually affecting the DNA? Level? Yes. <laughs> so it depends. So for those sex ratio modifying reproductions that I mentioned, there are three. Male killing, the males die. That's relatively straightforward. And then there's parthenogenesis, or that conversion to asexuality, and feminization. And ultimately, feminization and parthenogenesis induction look the same. You have all these females in the population, but they're very different at the genetic level. So parthenogenesis induction, we found this in haplodiploid insects. So sex determination across plants and animals and all organisms happens a variety of ways. Most people know humans, you either have XY male, XX your female, but in a number of insects, sex is determined by how many copies of the chromosomes you have. So in parasitoid wasps and some beetles and other things, if you have two copies, so if you derive from a fertilized egg, you're female. 
If the egg is not fertilized, you're haploid, one copy, you're male. So the way parthenogenesis induction happens is an unfertilized egg is laid, you're haploid, and Wolbachia does something, we don't quite know what yet, and then it ensures that the chromosomes don't separate during the first division of the egg, and then you're diploid, so you develop as female. Parthenogenesis is an example of asexual reproduction. Parthenogenesis is often seen in the hymenoptera insects, which includes parasitic wasps, like the ones that Dr. Lindsay studies. This process is where a female insect will produce offspring without sexual reproduction. Since eggs are not fertilized, parthenogenesis is similar to cloning, meaning offspring are almost genetically identical to their mother. Feminization, on the other hand, is, a, is not a genetic change. Karyotypically, feminized males look male. They have a male karyotype, but they express female. And we think that has to do with expression changes of sex-determining genes. So there are genes called double sex and transformer, and depending how they get chopped up, um, you either are destined male or female, and Wolbachia looks to affect that. So we see all sorts of different things in those parasitoid wasps where there's changes to the karyotype, so it's more of a genetic sort of thing. We also see epigenetic effects on top of that. So we think that conversion to female is two steps. We think there's the diploidization, so you need two copies. And then on top of that, you also have to do other things, of which we're not quite sure, so that you express male. Because in the lab, sometimes we see it go wrong, and then you'll get a diploid individual, and they'll be intersex, and they'll have like one male antennae, one female antennae, and no genitalia. <laughs> so, But we know they have female chromosomes throughout but they're just not expressing it. So it's really this complex combination of things, and we don't know how it happens yet. So you've been mentioning this parasitoid wasp. For those who don't really know what that is, can you explain what a parasitoid is and why Wolbachia and studying parasitoid wasps is important? Yeah, so parasitoids are animals that complete their development within another animal. So parasitoid wasps are probably the biggest group of parasitoid or parasitic animals that we see. And what happens is a female wasp will lay her egg or eggs inside of another animal. Typically in parasitoid wasps, it's another insect or maybe an arthropod like a spider. And oftentimes these interactions are really specific. So for example, species of parasitic wasp will only lay its eggs in this exact species of beetle. Sometimes it's more general. Any beetle is fine. It just depends. And so they lay this egg inside of the other insect. The egg hatches within this other insect and develops to adulthood within the other insect and then out hatches a new adult wasp instead of a beetle. And there's huge diversity in parasitoid biology. Some lay their eggs in other eggs. Some lay their eggs in larvae. Some lay their eggs in pupae. Some lay 100 eggs in there. Some only lay one egg in there. So you have a lot of, of variation. But ultimately, parasitoids are, are huge drivers of ecology and evolution. And they're used a lot in agricultural settings to control pestiferous insects. So moths and caterpillars that eat your crops or beetles that eat the roots of your corn, things like this. Almost all insects have a parasitoid that attacks it. So if you have a really specific interaction between a particular parasitoid that will only kill the pest you care about, you can release these parasitoids. The females will kill all of your pests by laying eggs in them and having wasps developing inside. Um, and 
it is sort of marketed as a more natural pest control method. You're not spraying pesticides or anything like that. And so it is a really useful and commonly used way of targeting pests in agriculture. That's awesome. And your work with Wabakia and pest control, how does that relate? Yeah, so I mentioned those uh, ways in which Wolbachia modifies reproductive biology and a lot of those skew sex ratios. And so a lot of parasitoid wasps have Wolbachia that converts them to asexual reproduction. So now your population is all female. And when we think about parasitism and biological control, only females lay eggs. So the more females you have, the more egg laying and pest parasitizing potential you have in that population. And so it's important in sort of two steps. One, you have to grow a lot of parasitoids to then release into your field. And you don't want to grow males. If you're wasting your resources growing males, there's sort of a dead end as far as biocontrol grows. But then also the more females that you release, the more pest control you get out of it. So using Wolbachia, and people have done field studies with things like this. I'm not a field biologist. I stay inside the air-conditioned lab. But People have shown that the Wolbachia-infected all-female populations are much more efficient as far as your rearing costs and much more efficient as far as your parasitization rates go in the field. Can you actually manipulate Wolbachia and make it... I, I'm sorry, no, I'm just curious. You're just, I, I want to so bad. <laughs> what no oh, okay. one sees her crying because she really wants to manipulate <laughs> Got it. She's like, why isn't CRISPR in my system? Yeah, we have no genetic tools in Wolbachia yet. <laughs> I have crazy ideas to try it. Dr. Lindsay just mentioned genetic tools. An example of a genetic tool that has recently come to the forefront of research and the news is CRISPR-Cas9 mediated genome editing. With CRISPR-Cas9, scientists are able to make large sequence deletions, silence genes, and even make small base pair deletions. A tool this powerful can fix human diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, fragile X, schizophrenia, blood pressure, migraines, Alzheimer's, and so much more. So it's something we're kind of working on in the background. Other groups are working on it too. We don't have genetic tools in Wolbachia. And part of the reason is that A, they're unculturable outside of insect cells. So I have cell lines, insect cell lines like Drosophila, Mosquito. They're full of Wolbachia. We can do some interesting things there. Once you take them out of the cells, they stop growing. But people have shown with publications that you can keep them out of the host for three weeks, four weeks, and then put them back in. But they are not replicating. So trying to get a mutant that you can then select for becomes really difficult. The other thing is, is that these are large populations. You don't just have one Wolbachia in each cell. You can have hundreds of Wolbachia in a cell, which is shocking. Like that's a huge infection. And for the insect to not be dead when it's chock full of Wolbachia is amazing to me. I mean, they're more Wolbachia than they are fly or wasp at that point. So I think fundamentally that's really interesting. But because you have so many Wolbachia in there, it becomes really hard. Even if you get mutants, how do you A, select for them? And then how do you get a clonal population? And so in these other Rickettsia species that people have, people have uh, gotten mutagenesis and integration of transgenes working, but the problem is always getting a clonal population. So they might get fluorescently tagged one, but then every, each Rickettsia in there has the tag in a different place. So that's sort of the difficulty right now, but we have some new plasmids we're going to try and a crazy machine. We're just going to blast them and see if we can get anything to work. But yeah, I would love even just a fluorescently tagged 
bacteria just to see where it goes. So like there's so many sort of natural history questions that we don't have answers to. We do, however, have the benefit of Drosophila genetics. So we cannot manipulate Wolbachia yet, hopefully in the future, but we have tons and tons and tons of cool tools available in Drosophila, which is a natural host for Wolbachia. I do want to learn a little bit more about the genomics that you're doing and more of the questions that you're doing with Wolbachia. So like we've talked about like kind of like the broader ideas, but like what questions of genomics are you specifically looking at? Yeah. So I, it's interesting when I first started graduate school, we didn't have any genomic tools available for the parasitoid Wolbachia system that I was working in. So I generated reference genomes, both for Wolbachia and the wasp, annotated those, did a lot of comparative analyses, looking for interesting evolutionary patterns. And I've gotten over the last however many years, more and more functional. My questions are always like, which gene? How is it working? Where does it go? With Wolbachia, have started doing more comparative approaches, trying to figure out what is Wolbachia's sort of core set of genes that it's using to interface with host biology. And so bacteria encode a lot of systems to be able to do this. They have sensors on the outside. They're probably picking up interesting signals from the insect they're living within. They have systems called secretion systems that will push proteins out into the insect so that those can go manipulate insect biology. And coming from an evolutionary background, for me, comparing all these genomes and seeing what's the same across all of them is a good first step, I think, in trying to figure out what's important. If they all have the same set of genes, it's likely really important for interfacing with the host. So at this point, we've done a lot of comparative genomics trying to identify what are the core genes Wolbachia has to interact with the insect? And now we're gearing up to do some of the protein biology and things like that. One of the things that we're really interested in right now is how Wolbachia is regulating gene expression. How does it turn off genes? How does it turn on genes? When does it do that? What is it responding to? And so with sort of the more genomics angle, something we're thinking about is using a technique called ChIP-seq. ChIP-seq is a method used to analyze protein interactions with DNA like where a specific protein might be binding. When paired with RNA sequencing, which tells the user which genes are being expressed and how much, scientists are able to make strong inferences of which genes are being turned on and off by which proteins. Dr. Lindsay uses ChIP-seq to understand how Wolbachia is able to control sex ratios and further understand the mechanisms involved in this process. And ideally, we can pair that with changes in Wolbachia's environment. Which genes does it turn off and on when you take it out of the insect? What if you put it into a new insect? How does it turn off and on those genes? So that's what we're sort of thinking about with the Wolbachia side of things. Um, and then as far as the parasitoid goes, we you know dabble in a few different systems. Some of the things we do in Drosophila when we need a lot of genetic tools. I really like this evolution of asexuality that happens in the wasps when they have Wolbachia. And so I had told you how with Wolbachia, the offspring are converted to genetic females, and then you have this population of asexual females. And what's really interesting is that over time, the wasps will lose the ability to convert back to sexual reproduction. So even if you clear them of antibiotics, mutations have happened in the wasp such that they are no longer able to fertilize their eggs. And they need to fertilize their eggs to get females. So if you take out Wolbachia, they make haploid males, but they won't fertilize their eggs and they are a dead end. They need Wolbachia. 
And so we're doing some more classical forward genetics approaches to figure out what are those genes that have degraded such that now they're dependent upon Wolbachia for the production of female offspring. So that is a very different approach, a lot less functional at this point. Uh, we're just trying to map and figure out which genes they are, but then hopefully in the future we can do some more functional stuff and figure out why is it that those genes are important, how do they work, things like that. So actually to follow up on mm -hmm. that, you mentioned two types of genomic approaches, and one of which was functional and the other one was comparative genomics. Do you mind telling us what the difference between those two are and why they're useful as tools? Yeah, so comparative genomics would be taking genome sequence or gene sequence, protein sequence within an organism and comparing it to related organisms. And you can get a lot of information from that. You can see who has which genes and who is missing which genes. Sometimes organisms will make copies of certain genes. You'll have what we call paralogs, and you can infer interesting selection patterns based on how many times this duplication or expansion has occurred in certain gene families. And then you can also compare at the sequence level and ask, are there genes that are evolving really quickly in one species? Are there genes that are evolving really slowly in that species? And depending on what we know about the rate of evolution, how many copies of these genes they have, we can make some guesses as to why they might be important in that organism. And so again, we infer that by comparing to related organisms where we also kind of know the genome sequence and biology. And then the functional genomics is more what it sounds like. You're looking at function. And typically functional genomics sort of starts in a very computational place where we predict based on the sequence of a gene or protein, what might it be doing? Is it in the nucleus? Is it on the cell membrane? We can make guesses based on sequence relatedness and what we know about other proteins. And then we can do work to see when is that gene turned on? When is it turned off? And then after that, you typically go back to the bench at that point and start asking questions about the protein, which proteins in the cell does it interact with? Does it interact with DNA? If it interacts with DNA, is it turning on and off other genes? And so functional genomics is much more sort of, I suppose, cyclic in terms of you kind of do some computational stuff, make some hypotheses about what it's doing, go to the bench and test those hypotheses. Oh, it's binding DNA. Okay, now let's knock it out and see, now do we get changes in expression of all these other genes, which would then be a computational question again. So they're very complementary to me. I have been grounded in evolutionary biology. I think the comparative genomics is really important for figuring out what might be important because the organisms have conserved these genes or expanded them. And then the functional stuff will tell you how it's working, which then allows us to make more hypotheses about how that evolved in the first place. Are there any misconceptions in your work that you want to address? Like, is there anything that people just don't really understand and you're just like, hmm. let's enlighten them? So I think it kind of just depends on, you know, what aspect of my work we're talking about. I do have a very, I don't know, soft spot for wasps and parasitoids. There's a lot of anti-wasp propaganda out there. People love bees. Wasps are important parts of ecosystems and they take care of pests. So that's like my wasp soapbox. Thank you so much for joining us this week. It was awesome to hear from you. Yeah, thanks for having me and I really appreciate the invite. It's wild to think something so small can have such a huge impact. 
maybe one day we can have biological forms of pest control instead of using harmful pesticides like we do now. Yeah, from pest control to sex ratios, we learned how symbionts like Wolbachia can affect small organisms like wasps. But it makes you think how much of our own bacteria is influencing the things we do. We don't yet understand the complexity of our own bodies and the organisms we are interacting with. Research like Dr. Lindsay's helps us break down those mysteries around us so we can understand more of this microbial world. This is Radio Bio, signing off. This episode's interviewers were Morgan Quayle and Yamari Vasquez, and produced by Nat Brown. The editing was done by Cal Larnard and Yamari Vasquez. Art was created by Julia Alvarez. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcast at www.radiobio.net.